Welcome to season four of Conversations with Coleman. Many of you have been wondering where I've been. Well, as you can imagine, I've been very busy promoting my new book, The End of Race Politics, Arguments for a Colorblind America. If you haven't grabbed a copy of the book, please do so, or listen to the audiobook, which I actually read myself. I've been so busy promoting the book, in fact, that I had to take a hiatus from this podcast, and I'm sorry about that. But don't worry, I'm back. And quick aside, for supporters of the show, I actually turned off donations effective New Year's Day, so no one who donates monthly should have been charged in the past two months. During my hiatus, I've had a chance to reflect on my own workflow over the past three years of doing this podcast, and I'm amazed it's even been three years. Uh, And I've come to some conclusions about the way I've been running things and the way I would prefer to run things going forward. The past few years, I've been running two feeds in parallel, one for supporters of the show and one for everyone else. And I've been releasing an episode every week, or technically two episodes, because of the parallel system. Not only that, I've been recording and running ads every week on the public feed. Now, this system has worked, but there was always a trade-off involved for me to run things this way. The demands of managing that system ended up taking a lot of my time and attention from the long-term projects I was working on, including my book, which is part of the reason why it took me so long to write in the first place. A writing session can always be pushed to tomorrow when you're facing a strict regimen of weekly podcast-related work. So given that I still have many long-term projects that I care about, including a new and more ambitious book project, I've decided to structure things differently as I enter season four of this show. So rather than have two parallel RSS feeds, I'm only going to have one. And rather than commit myself to weekly episodes, I'm going to record and release episodes on a more flexible schedule. That might mean I release one in a given week, two, or none at all. And I'm no longer going to commit myself to running ads on every single episode. I realize that all of this will decrease my podcast revenue substantially, but given my other goals, I think it makes sense for me, at least for now. For now, the only change relevant to you all is that your podcasts won't be delivered on a regular weekly schedule anymore. I hope that's okay. Uh, If you've been supporting my show under the old structure and would like to continue supporting under the new structure, you'll have to re-sign up via the Patreon link in the description. As always, I appreciate the support immensely. So, with that said, on to my guest today. My guest is Abigail Schreier. Abigail is a journalist and author best known for her 2020 book, Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. She's contributed to various publications, including the Wall Street Journal and the New York Post, where she often writes on issues related to gender and free speech. Her new book, which we discussed today, is called Bad Therapy, Why the Kids Aren't Growing Up. And in this book, she advances the interesting but provocative thesis that therapy has had a negative effect, especially on the younger generation. So without further ado, Abigail Schreier. Okay, Abigail Schreier, thanks so much for coming on my show. Oh, it's terrific to be here, Coleman. Thanks for having me. So I've uh, I've been following you for a long time and... Uh, read your last book, which was fantastic. And and oh, if you don't you. mind, I actually want to ask a, a little bit about that topic first, just quickly. Sure. So uh, you you had a, a really great book about the problem of rapid onset gender dysphoria, which was uh, continues to be a radio radioactive topic, but was much more radioactive when you wrote about it. Uh, and in fact, you got you know the the treatment you got from online retailers from from you know the whole mechanism of book marketing and and so forth was just really nasty and bizarre and censorious um but uh, you know so i'm curious how does it feel to now see the the new york times piece that came out about <laughs> a week or two ago which you know it, it literally reads as if they just wrote your wrote your book and just wanted to write a an exact summary of your thesis. <laughs> um, <laughs> but notice that they never cite me. Yes. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I like that. that. I, I did nice notice touch. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so how do you think the conversation has changed? You know, the conversation has changed. I'm really glad it's changed. And I wrote the book to sort of warn the public and warn parents that there were, you know, there was a lot of 
you know, lies and deception told about the medical protocols surrounding gender transition. And it was being portrayed popularly as something that was organic, something that children know, right? They know themselves even at 11, 12, they know who they are. That's what the activists say. And even the activist doctors, and they, we were pushing these kids, you know, thousands of them through very hasty and dangerous medical transitions that weren't leading to good outcomes. So um, to the extent that way more people know that today um, and that it's even, you know, presented in the New York Times is so obvious, no one needs to write a book about it. Um, I, I'm obviously, you know, happy with that outcome because that's, you know, that's definitely what I set out to do. Yeah. So it seems like this book is kind of a natural follow-up in that it tackles an issue that is broader, but but has very much the same shape, which is just, you know, now you're coming after therapy itself. I mean, th this in a way, this is less controversial and more controversial, you know, less controversial because it's not about a hot button political issue uh, or an issue that's been politicized, but more controversial because uh, you know, you will get a higher number of people, just normal everyday people claiming that therapy is good for them, <clears throat> that <clears throat> everyone they know should go to therapy. Uh, you will see just TikTok reels, Instagram reels constantly talking about why don't more people go to therapy in particular, why don't more men go to therapy and everyone would benefit from it. And it's just considered an, an unambiguously good thing. So, right. um, is there a link between your two books here? Is there, a, how did you come from that book to, to this new one? That is a great question. You know, people accuse me with the first book of various things like you're obsessed with trans kids or you're obsessed with trans. You know, I said then, and it's the truth that no, actually I was just interested in the rising generation because I'm raising three members of the rising mm -hmm. generation. So um, I have just general American interest in how the, the kids are doing, but also, you know, as someone who's setting out to do, you know, like we all try to do the best job for our kids, I wanted to know why young people seem to be struggling so much. And I learned three things. I interviewed hundreds and hundreds of American parents by the time I was done, because even after the book was out, hundreds more contacted me and they were, they were just desperate to find anyone, you know, could I send them to, could I recommend a therapist? Is there any way they could get, I could get them help for their daughter. And I learned in the course of talking to probably a thousand American parents, mostly Americans, I learned three things. One, I learned how much gen, uh, therapy, sorry, the, how much therapy the rising generation was getting nearly 40% have been to therapy. And this is much higher than any previous generation. I learned how utterly parents were relying on therapeutic experts to guide their parenting. Um, and then the third thing I learned was how often when I, you know, talked to the family, talked to the young person and had them retrace their steps to what the point at which everything went so badly off course with their, you know, young, uh, with their youth and their sudden decision to announce a transgender identity and start a course of hormones and surgeries, very, very often there stood a therapist uh, playing railway signalman, uh, flipping the switch. Mm. And, and the thing I want people to know is this wasn't a so-called gender therapist. This wasn't an activist therapist most often. It was often just a vanilla psychodynamic psychotherapist that the family had hired because they had an anxious or depressed 11-year-old girl. And just general therapy with a therapist often, you know, led to a therapist to say, okay, well, we we're done talking about your mother. Let's now talk about your gender. What are your feelings on your gender? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you my therapy story. Uh, and then I, I, I want to, I want you to tell listeners your, your son's stomach ache story. <clears throat> um, so my mom died when I was 18 and I, I was, uh, it was, I was a very, uh, psychologically healthy, uh, you know, happy kid, n normal kid, very driven and, and had no particular psychological problems to speak of. When my mom died, I really went through a kind of break where I, I, uh, I was just miserable. I was anxious. I was, you know, I, I had all of these, you know, unhelpful and, and unadaptive symptoms that I had never had at any point in my life. And, I think it was quite tied to grief and to the shock of, of, of losing her at that age. So I went to a therapist for two years 
And my experience in therapy was, I, I guess I had a few observations. One was that uh, it was really no different than talking to a, a, a smart, kind friend. In other words, he didn't have any specialist insights into me the way that, for instance, a neurosurgeon just does right. know more about the brain than I do. Um, right. But what was useful about it was that I didn't really want to talk to my friends about the experience of watching my mom die. So, and I didn't want to put them through that and become the annoying friend that's always bringing the situation down. So it was really just that you have, you have to pay someone to, to pay attention. And, and obviously talking about your, talking about a difficult experience, um, up to some limit is helpful. Now, I think most people, and in particular, most women, uh, probably get enough of that by hanging out with their friends, talking about things with their friends. And this is one of the really good points that you make in the book. At that time in my life, I didn't really have anyone to talk to. So it was helpful for the first year. The second year, by the second year, I had, I, I had substantially returned to a kind of healthy mental state and just kind of kept going out of a sense of obligation. And I think I got right. nothing out of it the second year. Uh, I think it was a waste of time. And, and by the very end, I, I did a, remember doing a session on Zoom with my therapist and he actually began to fall asleep. <laughs> and that's when I, that's when I pulled the plug. I said, I, I don't need this anymore. He doesn't need this anymore. Uh, so, and I haven't been to therapy since. Um, so I guess, uh, some of the lessons from my experience, you do, uh, you do, you do state in your book that it's, it's re really most, the benefit you do get from it, most people get from talking about their lives with their friends. No. That's right. I mean, look, you know, this varies according to individual in terms of how much they feel that they want to get out of therapy or can get out of therapy. And it varies according to the therapist, but, but here's the important point that I want people to know. I'm not anti-therapy. I'm no more anti-therapy, you know, psychotherapy than I am anti-chemotherapy, right? It just depends. Is, is someone the right kind of patient? Mm. Are they a cancer patient? Mm. Are they someone in need? But also there's a secondary thing. Are they a child or adolescent? See, when an adult goes to therapy, exactly like you said, they can get the benefits that they want. And at the time when they feel like it's no longer serving them or helping them, they can say, you know what? Thank you so much for your time. It's time for me to move on. I'm not sure this is helpful. They're able to calibrate, you know, to, to, to gauge um, what they're getting out of it and what they're not getting out of it because they're adults and they can say, you know what, um, I, I appreciate what you're saying, but I really don't think I would call my mom emotionally abusive. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe she shouldn't have yelled at me, but I don't, I'm not sure that's emotional abuse. Mm -hmm. A child is rarely in a position to know that. Um, and so with a child, the fact that there's no um, no one monitoring therapy to see you know whether there are these bad side effects, no one checking up to see if the patient is improving because the the profession doesn't require it. Things can go badly off course with a child, and and therapy, and I believe it is, can do as much damage as as good uh, for children and adolescents. Now I say that largely because most kids don't need therapy. If you have a child in crisis and you can't stabilize them another way, it's a totally different, you know, kettle of fish because there you're talking about someone who really stands to gain. They have a real severe problem. They're in crisis, but someone who's not in crisis is only, um, only exposed to the risks without the, you know, chance of benefit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually I re I'm realizing now I forgot to tell you what is actually the most interesting part of the story with, with when I was at therapy. So I'm, I'm 19 at this point, I'm struggling in the aftermath of my mom's death. I have anxiety. I'm sad every day. So, so on, on for months on end. And at some point, just on a random day in therapy where I haven't had any particular, uh, nothing particularly has changed. He, he was really moved by something I was telling him about my mom and how it was affecting me. And, and he said that he thinks I have PTSD, right? There you go. Yeah. And I did not take this very seriously at the time. I didn't, I didn't think 
I didn't think anything of it, and I and I don't today, which is why I actually forgot to include it in the story. I often forget that this happened, but he actually diagnosed right. me with PTSD, right? And that happens all the time. And with children, it's called demoralization. That's one of the iatrogenic effects of therapy. So I talk about in the book, iatrogenesis, which is when a healer introduces harm to the patient. Mm. And harm can come in any number of ways. You know, you, you go in for a surgery and you get, you pick up a MRSA infection or you go in for an x-ray and you're exposed to, um, you know, radiation. So even, even helpful interventions carry risk, right? Well, with psychotherapy, of course, it can be helpful, but it also carries risks. A lot of people don't realize that. And what you just said, your therapy, your therapist casually diagnosing you with PTSD, which is, by the way, on its face absurd. Yeah. Because PTSD is a severe condition. People have these absolutely serious, you know, <laughs> symptoms like, you know, um, these flashbacks in which they are truly disoriented. They believe they're in back in this, in the war, in the combat experience. These are, this is not, you know, something that you might casually have, you know, uh, you might be casually diagnosed with. Mm -hmm. um, but that kind of diagnosis goes on all the time. And with a child, it's very often that a child or adolescent will not only grab onto that diagnosis, but totally it will change their uh, self-understanding forever. Mm. That's it. I'm an ADHD kid. Mm -hmm. And it will limit them in all kinds of ways. Um, yeah. So there's there can be real harm from that. Right. Yeah. I mean, had I been the kind of person to latch on to a diagnosis as an identity, I mean, I, I could be you know, I, I could be like the, the insufferable person insisting that he has PTSD talking, you know, talking to a war veteran saying, oh, actually, I have it too. My mom died of cancer. <laughs> I was right. diagnosed with it. Uh, yeah, this is uh, it, it, your, your point about um, iatrogenesis. That's that's the, the, the name of it. Yes. Yeah. The, it's when a healer introduces harm. Right. It, it's interesting because to assert that therapy is powerful, to assert that it can change your habits, your personality, and so forth for the better, would imply that it's powerful enough to change those things for the worse. Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, you you exactly. can't really it have it both mean, ways. That's exactly right. I mean, it, saying that it's powerful means that it can also hurt. Right. That's just what it means. Otherwise, it does nothing. It's right. ineffectual. But but I don't think we believe that about therapy. Right. So um, so then we have to acknowledge. Interesting, by the way, there's a good there's a big body of research on the harms of therapy, um, and every researcher knows this. What's in, what was interesting to me is few clinicians, few therapists were willing to either admit it or mm. take it seriously. So they would deny, some of them even would deny that therapy can harm. But, but you know, you mentioned, you know, a sort of a therapy for, for grief. And when they have done, there are a series of studies they have done, including for grief counseling, um, you know, first responders, they have done these, um, you know, studies of, of those who went to counseling after a traumatic incident, those who didn't, burn victims, and um, even cancer survivors. And they have very often found that grief counseling and these kinds of support counseling can make people feel worse. Mm. They often do. Now, that doesn't mean everyone will be made to feel worse, but some portion of the population will be led to feel worse through grief counseling, counseling than they would have felt on their own if they just surrounded themselves with friends and family who were supportive. And why is it that uh, group therapy or one-on-one -on -one therapy might lead someone to feel worse? because there's something called rumination, which is a very unhealthy way to proceed. And it is rehashing endlessly in your mind, sad thoughts and sad memories. It is a, an unhealthy pattern of thought. It's the number one predictor and symptom of depression. And you can encourage it in others. Now, um, you know, you can make people sad by making, by having them endlessly rehash their grievance, their pain, their disappointment, their bad memory. And unfortunately, sometimes that's what therapy does. That's, you know, if, if a, if a person is recovering from grief, if they're gradually adjusting and we are built as human beings. I mean, if you look back at our history, we have gone, you talk about trauma. We, the, the story of humanity is of getting past trauma, severe trauma, but we get past it because we're built to. Now that doesn't mean everyone will, or everyone will to the same extent. And it doesn't mean that some of us, you know, especially as adults couldn't use an extra person who's paid to talk to you. 
um, to help you through some things. Of course, you know, I've been in therapy. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm certainly all in favor of that if you think it's right for you at any given point. But, but um, the idea that it's important for everyone to go through, and by the way, you all have been through something hard. We will see you now Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Well, it's just as likely that a therapist will encourage a kid who's actually feeling better to no, no, stop. Let's go back and talk about your pain. Yeah. So one of one of my uh, loosely held beliefs is that, um, you know, therapy is probably more useful on average for men than for women because what I've noticed in 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 my life is that men tend to ha- in difficult situations tend to have fewer people to talk to, and sometimes right. no people to talk to, whereas women tend to have at least a couple friends that are. Um, or people or family members that they're comfortable talking about a difficult situation with. So that just clearing that low threshold of just being able to talk about a difficult situation when it's happening or just after it's happened. Um, right. I mean, yeah. How do you feel about the, the, the gender, the gender effect here? Is, is therapy different for men and women? Probably it is. I don't know the, the research specifically on that gender divide, but I will tell you this. It also depends who you're talking to, right? We all know that our friends, we have friends who can make us feel worse about our worries. And that's what therapists can do and are doing as well. They often can make us feel, oh, really? Your husband did that? Or you're, you know, oh my God. You know, they they can make you feel worse about something you're struggling with. Now, those aren't good friends to open up to and you quickly figure that out. But, um, but, but unfortunately they can exacerbate you know, and, and, you know, cause depression and anxiety to perseverate. And I do believe that therapists are now doing that with a whole generation of children who really don't need them, Mm. uh, but are nonetheless have to talk to this lady, you know, every week at 2 PM or whatever it is. Right. So I I have a good friend who, uh, he also has a podcast and might, might want to get you on, but it's kind of a hobby horse of his to talk about, uh, why, why he thinks therapy is, is BS. Um, and especially, okay. especially with professional therapists. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I mean, one, one of the points that I, I, th- I think many people have made, including in your book and, and that I've thought of before is just the, the weird incentive structure. So if, if I were thinking like yeah. a, just an economist, you know, not thinking from a social psychology lens at all, what are the incentives of therapy? In, in the same way that the incentives of a dating app are to keep you on the app rather than to, to get you off of it, the incentives of a therapist are to keep you coming back to, to, for you to never be cured. And, That's right. And um, you, you had a very interesting part of your book where you talk about how um, the vast majority, at least many diseases where w- treatment has gone up, d- disease incidence has gone down. Um, either as a result or, or, or a correlation, but with, with mental health issues, you see, you, you see something different. You see treatment going higher and higher every year, more and more people getting therapy, but more and more people also having the things therapy is supposed to cure. Uh, so right. what is behind that? Right. So this is the treatment prevalence paradox. You know, a group of researchers looked into it and, you know, and and this is the paradox. So when I started writing this book, I had a question. Why was the generation that had received the most therapy, the most psych meds, the most diagnosis, the most school-related, you know, school uh, mental health interventions, why were they suffering so much? They should be the picture of mental health. And then my second question was, why didn't they seem to want to grow up? And here is the treatment prevalence paradox that researchers looked into that I uncovered while I was trying to answer those questions. The paradox is that the more access to a medication or treatment people have, the more prevalent that treatment, the rates of incidence of disease or disorder should go down. Okay. So we saw this with breast cancer prevention. 1989, I think was the high point in, in, in breast cancer mortality rates. Um, and then as breast cancer screening became more available, more accessible and better, the rates of death from breast cancer plummeted. We've seen this with many, many things, maternal sepsis and antibiotics, many things. The the therapists 
now say, you know, the mental health industry now says, well, these kids haven't had enough therapy. They need ever more. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. We need more mental health interventions. But there has been such dramatic expansion over the last several decades that they, they really have to explain why um, the rates of depression have skyrocketed under their care why the rates of anxiety have skyrocketed. And instead they just say, oh, well, they haven't had enough. Well, um, you know, uh, what the team of researchers who looked into the treatment prevalence paradox that they called it, they came out with a paper in 2021, I think, uh, uh, yes, 2021. And, and they said, um, you know, to be, they, they basically said, you know, we think treatment for depression has gotten better. It's certainly gotten more accessible and prevalent across the West, but not in a single Western country have rates of depression gone down. Mm. And that's that's just something the professionals sort of need to account for. Yeah, I mean, the, is is one part of it that uh, these other diseases, maternal maternal sepsis, maternal mortality, breast cancer, et cetera, mm -hmm. these are the symptoms are objective, whereas right. the symptoms for being depressed or anxious, like like my old therapist did with me, are totally subjective. I mean, not totally, but but there's a great degree of subjectivity there. Uh, does that have something to That's do with it? Yeah, I, I think that there's no question there's vast overdiagnosis, but it's it's sort of worse than that. You know, you mm -hmm. talked about the incentives a moment ago, and I meant to say something about that, which is not only do therapists, aren't they incentivized, they are, not only are they incentivized to keep a patient forever and to keep a child patient forever, they want to treat the least sick for the longest period of time. Because after all, nobody wants to treat a bipolar patient. They're really hard to treat. They need help desperately, mm -hmm. and they're very hard to cure mm -hmm. or, or treat at all. Schizophrenics, boy, do they need mental health intervention. It's so clear they're not getting enough. It's also clear that those, they're so difficult to treat. Most therapists will tell you they won't even see such patients. But treat a kid who's who's got maybe a little social anxiety once a week. The family pays on time. There's not getting violent during the session. There's every reason to keep it going for as long as possible. And I'll just tell you a quick story. I interviewed one young woman who'd been in therapy since she was six. She was now a senior in high school, but she was, I call her Becca in the book. And she had been in therapy since age six when her parents divorced. And I talked to her senior year of high school and she had just been admitted to college. And she was telling me, and I asked her, you know, what are you working on with her, with, with your therapist? And she said, you know, I'm working on my anxiety. And, um, also I'm going off to college next year and I need to work on, um, learning how to make friends. I, I, I want to do a good job at this. And one of the sort of classic iatrogenic effects of therapy is what they call treatment dependency, or feeling like you need an expert or an adult to help you do basic things that we all can do, like learn to make a friend. This young woman, at, at you know, as a high school senior, was convinced she needed a therapist to help her learn to make friends. And, and she wasn't autistic. It's not as though she had some impediment that she was mm -hmm. struggling with. She just had bought in that she needed a therapist for virtually everything. Mm. Okay, so let's talk about some more uh, troubling trends about younger generations. And I encourage people yeah. to go back and listen to my conversation with Jean Twenge. Oh yeah. For she's all wonderful. of the, uh, all of the data about just exactly how, how rough Gen Z is doing. And well, I'm technically Gen Z according to Twenge's years. Um, but I, I guess I'm a boomer at heart because I see so much <laughs> wrong with, with the generation. So <clears throat> ADHD. You, you know what Coleman? Yeah. But yeah. If I can just, <laughs> I, you know, and this is to do with, uh, you know, I, I talked about, you know, why these kids don't want to grow up. One mm -hmm. of the things is I believe the two things are related, the bad therapy and not wanting to grow up. These kids feel so fragile. They don't want to grow up. And you are such an outlier really mm -hmm. in your generation in such a good way. And whenever I meet someone, any, you know, like you, and I know you're at the very beginning of Gen Z, but, um, I always want to ask about their parents mm -hmm. because, their parents know more than all the parenting experts out there, I can assure you. Mm. And uh, I mean, those are people, people who have successfully raised a great child to, you know, great adulthood, meaning a, a responsible adult who can be dependent on, depended on by others, can be a load bearing wall, can, can take on the responsibilities of professional and personal life and other, and, and so forth and be a good person. Those are the people who really know the secrets to, to raising kids, in my opinion. Yeah, well, 
in a nutshell, my, my dad, who is uh, um, still alive and, and a great guy uh, who I love a lot, he's um, he was the kind of parent that was like, if, if you're happy, if you're healthy, if you're supporting yourself as an adult, crucially on that third part, he had no <laughs> other requirements for you. But wow. those were very important, like happy, okay. healthy, supporting yourself. And, and really, I felt no significant pressures outside of like those really important things. My mom on this point was, um, she was kind of a classic immigrant mom that like, if you tried to, if you tried to tell her about depression and anxiety, she like literally would not know what you're talking about <laughs> and would like move on. I love <laughs> so, um, like I don't think had those concepts in her mental vocabulary. So, <laughs> you know, I was going to ask very if tough, you had a very tough woman. Was she? You know, I, I was going to ask if you had immigrant parents because immigrants are doing so much better than American parents, especially in the last generation. They are generally yeah. producing healthier kids, happier kids, less anxious kids, less depressed kids. Right. And part of the reason is they are, first of all, they're not a lot, they're not afraid to assert their own authority with their kids, which doesn't mean being cruel or unloving, just, okay, but I'm still your parent. I'm in charge. Mm -hmm. And American parents are too often afraid to do that. Right. And it's actually study after study has shown it's really bad for kids' mental health. Right. Okay. So let's talk about uh, ADHD <laughs> because this is something I've raised it on the show many times before. I'm no expert here. I am a person that has, you know, eyes and ears and I've, I've done Adderall. I did Adderall in college to study for my exams. I liked it a lot. Uh, stopped <laughs> doing it pretty quickly because the, the, uh, the after effects I found to be just absolutely terrible. I just, wow. Be, like what? Oh, just horribly irritable. Like, you know, after it wears off, I would just like, oh, wow. I would, I would have just the shortest fuse, shorter fuse than I, than I ever have. And it's just absolutely not worth it. Um, even though it's great to feel that level of focus when, when it's hitting. Um, you know, I'm, I'm curious because so many people that appear to, uh, that, that I know a lot of people, especially musicians who, weren't great at sitting still in class because they were bored and because frankly class was boring and their interests lied mm -hmm. elsewhere. And many of them would get diagnosed with ADHD and prescribed medication when it, it seemed to me equally plausible that they're, they're just not the type of person that's going to excel in this setting and they're going to find their career elsewhere. And most of them have no trouble focusing in general. They just don't like focusing on school because it was boring to them. That's right. You know, the number one uh, source of referrals for ADHD uh, diagnosis mm. are teachers. Teachers. Mm. Well, that's a conflict of interest, right? <laughs> They're not, they, they know no, <laughs> they have no medical knowledge, but they really do want to keep a child bolted to their seat no matter how boring they, they are. Mm. And I talked to parents who one year their kid, the teacher would say they had, uh, you know, ADHD. And the next year, the teacher would say they were great. Well, no teacher's going to say I'm not a very good teacher. Mm. Right. And um, the, the, the problem is not just that kids are getting diagnosed with ADHD and forever thinking that they're limited. There's something wrong with their brain. It is a profound thing to get a mental health diagnosis. Mm -hmm. No matter how much we try to remove st stigma, you feel that you are limited in this way. You believe it. But there's something else too. And you mentioned the stimulants, you know, um, Adderall, Concerta, the Stratera, the different, um, you know, speed. You're, you're setting a kid up for something that has powerful symptoms of withdrawal. I think it's a schedule two narcotic. It can be habit forming. Um, it has powerful symptoms of withdrawal if they ever go off it. They tend to need increasing doses to make it work because over time it seems to not produce as much of the effect. But there's something else too. If a kid is lazy in school or just not a good student and then they decide to work hard and become a better student or they find other subjects they're really good at and devote themselves to those, they feel so much accomplishment. Mm -hmm. When we put a kid and say, don't worry, you need a pill, the pill will take care of it, we've, sh we've completely shortchanged them. They don't get that. So 
my, my problem isn't that we should never give any of the kids these medications. We're giving them so casually without any sense that we might be forever altering their sense of self, you know, their self-conception, and also their ability to feel pride in anything they achieve. There's a common uh, argument made here that kids who really do have ADHD respond to Adderall differently than someone like me who doesn't. And that, you know, sort of my, it, it makes them feel normal where it would make me feel, I guess, some kind of surplus uh, feeling. And, but, but, you know, I've always doubted, I've doubted that this is as important a point as it seems because, you know, how could you not experience the after effects or the, 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 the come down of a given drug, right? It's like, whether you're a happy drunk or a mean drunk, you're still going to feel a hangover the next day, right? Uh, That's right. And, and, and how could we know that? I mean, unless you're talking about the most severe cases of ADHD where someone truly can't function, mm. um, how could we know that it just makes you feel normal? Mm -hmm. um, especially when you're, what you're talking about is a child and you're still saddling the child with withdrawal. Yeah. And um, because there are powerful withdrawal symptoms and potential addiction. I mean, yeah. this is stuff we're playing around with that really, if you want to, you know, pop an Adderall as an adult, that's really your business in my view. But, but as a child, you might just be setting them up for addiction yeah. or other things. And, and people often do move from ADHD to other drugs and right. whatnot. I'll, I'll tell you though, you, you bring up a great point, which is that here's the story that gets told. It just makes people with real ADHD feel normal. Well, let me tell you another story that gets told that I found out there was no actual basis for, but, but it is the story that gets told. They, they, you know, the doctors have had to contend with the fact that there are these startling, um, you know, reports and surveys and, and pieces of research showing that very high rates of suicidal ideation and even suicide among adolescents on SSRIs. So why why is suicide a side effect, such a side effect that it's a it's a warning hmm. that there's a you know black box warning of of suicide as a side effect of SSRIs, and the story that gets told is. Oh, because it improves your motivation. And it's so, so in some number of people, it will help them, you know, <laughs> fulfill the suicide. Oh, now God. I interviewed a lot of experts, psychological experts and psychiatric experts on things like SSRIs. And they told me, you know, that's a story. There's just no proof of it. We don't know why, you know, there's a high rate of suicide among, you know, adolescents on SSRI. There just is, mm. there seems to be a connection there. We don't know why. Mm. Is it possible that uh, something like SSRIs is just there? It's just tailored to a, a, a specific subset of people where it works, and in other subsets of people, it, it just doesn't work or even backfires. Just like you know, any two people can react to to alcohol very differently, for instance. You know, it, it's it's possible, but I'm you know I'm about to step very much out of my yeah. uh, area of knowledge, and the reason is not just that I'm a journalist, but also because the little that we know about the way the brain works and the reasons SSRI seem to work is shocking. Mm. Um, there's research coming out all the time on this. We know very little. So, for instance, many researchers contend that SSRIs don't work. What they do is they depress all emotions. So it's possible that they depress your anxiety along with everything else, but mm. they're not actually curing your anxiety or curing your depression. Right. We just don't know very much about these drugs. And, you know, as I said before, an adult who chooses to go on them for whatever reason, you know, far be it for me to, you know, say anything about that. But with a child, parents, unfortunately, so often will allow a child to be put on it for without without significant thought to... Um, just how profound a decision that is. Right. It's about as profound as any decision you could ever make for your kid. You're, you're, you're sort of deleting a period of their life when they would otherwise develop a certain emotional musculature. Mm. And before you do that, you really ought to take a, a, you know, look long and hard to see if there's any way you can upend your life to avoid uh, putting them on an SSRI. Mm. Okay. Let's talk about corporal punishment. This is a interesting topic. I was never hit as a kid. My parents didn't believe in it. Um, uh, I think that I'm, I'm sure my mother was hit um, and 
my father actually my father was actually hit in school once because uh, you know that <laughs> in america <laughs> in america yeah wow. um but not at home in any event okay you know uh I, I i always struggle with this because i don't i have a lot of friends that were hit growing up and none of them seem to my eye to be broken by that experience insofar right. as there was it, 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 as it was handled like a, a rational punishment for misbehavior, right? It's like if if your right. dad comes home and he's a mean drunk and he just starts wailing on everyone in the family for no reason, well, I can certainly see how that would mess you up. But right. if you did something wrong and the penalty was getting hit by your parents some degree, it I'm sure it's not very pleasant, but I, I haven't actually seen with my own eyes evidence of it messing people up as, as adults, though that is often um, kind of alleged. I'm curious, is there right. any research on that? Have you looked into there that is. at all? There's great research on this and there's no evidence of trauma or damage from what we call a routine you know, spanking or smack. Now, I'm not an advocate of spanking kids for many reasons. One of them is I'm not sure it's particularly efficacious. I haven't seen good evidence on that of that. And second of all, we're in a society where you can get your kids taken away from you, or you can, you know, or you can really lead a child to believe that they were um, abused because it's so frowned upon in our society. So, um, I, you know, I'm I'm not an advocate for spanking, but you know, all the research that we have has, you know, has never produced evidence of trauma or PTSD or the like from a brisk spanking. And by the way, every, I, I mean, I don't know almost anyone in my generation. I'm, I'm born in 1978, so I'm the tail end of Gen X. I don't think I know anyone my age who wasn't spanked at some point. Mm -hmm. And if you go to other cultures where the rates of mental illness or anxiety and depression among young people are far lower than America's, they almost all spank. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, there just isn't very good proof. Believe me, if if they had had proof of, uh, you know, PTSD from from a brisk, as you say, rational spanking, like some a parent smacks your hand for, you know, reaching for a, an electric plug and, you know, almost or, or an outlet and almost, you know, electrocuting yourself and the parent gives a hand to smack. If, if there if there was any proof that that traumatized kids, I'm sure they would have found it by now because mm. there are a lot of researchers hung, hungry for that answer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... You have a little section in your book about dare, uh, which uh, the drug. Uh, what was it? What was it? I forget the the exact acronym, but the the drug program that I actually did when I was in fifth grade, where they get for me they got a cop to come into the school and just tell us about how drugs are just uniformly terrible, and uh, you know about how cops can identify a, a, a bottle of vodka from a bottle of water by smell. That's some one detail I remember for some reason. <laughs> and did you, what was your experience like with dare? Did you, did it make you, did you have any reaction to, to the program? Almost none at all, uh, for okay. better or for worse. I, I think, and I was in fifth grade, I had no interest or experience in, in drug use at right. all or drinking. What had a significant effect on my behavior in high school was fear of my mother. <laughs> so right. I, I can I can I can say with a pretty high level of confidence, ha had my mother been chill with me drinking or smoking weed, I would have done more of both in high school. Now, I don't think it necessarily ended up influencing my habits as an adult. I'm like a right. weekend drinker and I think I would have okay. ended up a weekend drinker and I don't do any anything besides that. I would have ended up that way, I think, in, in in any event, but it definitely significantly affected my behavior in high school when I lived in her house. Dare had Amazing. dare, I think, had no effect. Right. Yeah. So there have been many studies of the Dare program now, and we know that it had no effect on anyone except mm. maybe to increase drug use. <laughs> it made some kids more curious about drugs. Yeah. <laughs> because like you, there were fifth graders who actually had never even thought about doing drugs or hadn't even heard much about them and it and, and the reason I include it in the book is it was a therapeutic. It was based on the, um, you know, techniques of Carl Rogers, a psycho, you know, very uh, 
a preeminent psychotherapist. And the idea was to get kids into a kind of therapy where they were supposed to share their drug experiences, talk about their drug use, and then sort of it was supposed to lead them to not wanting to use drugs. Mm -hmm. And of course, it, it did the opposite. And I argue in the book that effectively, that's what our mental health interventions are doing with kids in schools. They are now pervasive. They're very wide. There's, there's the mental health surveys they all take. There's the suicide hotlines on every door. There's the expanded mental health staffs in every school. And there's social emotional learning and we, in which you sit down and talk about your feelings and rehash your bad memories. And it's very often leading kids who weren't otherwise depressed into habits of, of depression and mm. feeling sad and anxious. Mm. The other contradiction about D.A.R.E. is that the, the officer would only tell you the negative parts of drug use, but then warn you against doing it. So a smart kid would think, well, if all I'm going to feel is shitty, why would you even need to warn me against this? I mean, it, who would even, why is this such a big problem? Well, what's the appeal? Right. Well, the appeal is that it makes you feel amazing for a short, relatively short amount of time. Um, right. and, and the lack of honesty about that I, is, is also interesting. Although I'm not sure I would also want cops to be honest about that either because I guess the lesson may be that really it was just the incentive of my mother's parenting was the only thing that had an effect on me. It wasn't her explaining to me why not to do drugs. It was that I knew she would fucking freak out on me if I did drugs. <laughs> it wasn't an argument, you know, what? You know it was just right. an incentive structure, right? You know what? And, and I said to parents about the last book that I wrote, people call me all the time, tell me who who, who fixed their daughter? Who got her out of this transgender identity? I see my daughter's getting more and more committed. And I used to say, look, I'm not a, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist, but if you want to know what I've learned from talking to hundreds of parents, I can tell you the number one, you know, most effective group, as far as I could tell is immigrant parents and they are authoritative and they are willing to, to lay down the law for their kids. And they do really well. Mm -hmm. Because what their kids are a little afraid of them sometimes. And that can be a very good thing. It's certainly better than going into every school with a mental health staff and having everyone open up about their feelings or problems or rehash their bad memories, or in this case, talk about their gender. You might just increase the problem you're trying to stop. Mm. And very often, that's what you do when you treat healthy people with medication they don't need. And that's what we're doing in the mental health space. We're treating every child as disordered or, or in need of, of, of therapy. And so what you're doing is you're just exposing all these kids to curiosity about suicide. I mean, the surveys, one of the surveys I quote, you know, this, there's surveys all over the public schools now and mental health surveys, and they're anonymized. So they can't, in theory, they can't, they're not supposed to be able to hurt an individual kid, but they also can't help an individual kid because they're anonymized. But they ask questions like, have you ever thought about killing yourself? If so, yes. If so, how often? By what methods? Have you thought about burning, cutting, scratching, or asphyxiating yourself? And it goes through all these options. Have you tried this drug? How about this drug? How about that drug? Have you tried this kind of sex, that kind of sex? And of course, you're also introducing into the population not only a lot of ideas, but a sense that, holy cow, is this what everybody else is doing? Am I the only one not doing this? Mm. Yeah, so I've, I've told this story, I think, on the podcast before, but when I was about 15, I had a crush on a girl, and she and all her friends had Tumblr at that time. And this was about 2011, 2012. So I needed something to talk to her about, so I got a Tumblr, and I checked out the whole world of, of Tumblr, of what it is to be into Tumblr as a 15-year-old girl with friends. And a lot of it, like half of it was like innocent uh, obsessions with TV shows and uh, like Doctor Who and, and like, uh, you know, Harry Potter, Twilight, these kinds of stuff that but but the other half of it was talking about precisely what you just said, uh, like cutting behaviors, talking about mental illness, um, even sharing images of scars from having cut yourself and these were shared you know all the time with with um with, with there was almost some kind of badge of honor to it where like in that world of tumblr to be cutting yourself and to be depressed and to have evidence of that 
gave you more clout in a, in a way. It made you it made you real. And I had no idea what to think about it at the time. It, it I, I I was just different and bizarre to me, but I, I noticed it. And uh, this it was also there that I first saw all of these words, uh, intersectionality and uh, systemic oppression, and all of these words that would later come uh, into the fore and be described as wokeness or social justice. Um, I'm curious if at all you have looked into uh, you know, Tumblr, although that might be now outdated, or or the effect of these social media subcultures in general on on mental health. Absolutely. So, um, my last book with irreversible damage, I talk about gender dysphoria, which is the severe discomfort in one's biological sex. Um, young young girls, especially, were convincing themselves they had it largely through social media and self-diagnosing. And then they had their transgender identity, their, their medical diagnosis, and then they wanted hormones and surgeries. And um, this was a social contagion, as I wrote about. Well, it turns out, and I grew curious, what other social contagions are there? Um, because I knew um, mental health professionals were very much participating in this one. Could they be participating in others? And um, of course, many of them go on online. They're perpetuated and increased online. But then you go to a mental health expert and you say, I'm pretty sure I have anxiety. I'm pretty sure I have depression. And they agree with you. And all of a sudden it gets reified. Now I'm sure. And I have the imprimatur of a mental health professional start me on the medications. And they do. Um, you know, there was that New York Times article that came out about a year ago about a, about teenagers on 10 different psychotropic drugs at a time. And that's that's what we're seeing. Mm. You know, they they add more and more to balance out the side effects. And then you have an entire generation that's numb to all the, you know, heartache, but all the, you know, highs and lows uh, that you you go through as a teenager and then you end up stronger. They're not ending up stronger because they're not in effect going through them at all. Mm. But, um, but yes, there's a lot of uh, self-diagnosis that's encouraged on the internet. They're so proud of their mental health diagnoses. They throw them up in their bios and unfortunately it forever changes their perception of themselves. It limits them. And it leads them to feel much worse. Hmm. Yeah. So, um, so you have some interesting thoughts on on happiness in the book. Actually, I'll I'll, I'll read this quote because I found it I found it very interesting. If you track a person's emotions over the course of a day or even a week, uh, Lyndon told me, happiness is actually a very rare emotion, statistically speaking. Of our 60,000 wakeful seconds each day, only a tiny percentage are spent in a state we would call happy. Most of the time, we're simply okay or fine. Trying to ignore some minor discomfort, feeling a little tired, run down, upset, stressed out, irritated, allergic, or in pain. Regularly prompting someone to reflect on their current state will, if they're being honest, elicit a raft of negative responses. So that's that's very interesting to me and I think true. Um I've spent some time on meditation retreats where you're you're essentially constantly paying attention to how you feel, and the majority of the time you don't feel fantastic, uh, and that's that's taken in the meditation context to be normal, right? It's 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 considered normal to feel constantly a bit dissatisfied, and the purpose in 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 a vipassana context, a Buddhist context, is to notice and let go of any any emotion negative or positive, any feeling negative or positive, uh, to not get caught up in discursive thought about those emotions, just to let them pass as if you're watching clouds, right? Amazing. And you, you make the point that in many ways, the therapeutic uh, tendency is to do the opposite, right? It's to... Right, exactly. So it's can to you do talk the about that a bit? Sure. So what you just said is the best um, intervention we know of. If you're having these loop of negative thoughts or negative feelings or negative emotions, um, the best therapists uh, will try to get you to stop those bad thoughts. Um, you know, cognitive behavioral therapists typically do that. They, they try to get you to stop dwelling on the bad and move on. Um, but most therapy doesn't go quite like that. Yeah, and even, by the way, among people who claim to be CT, CBT practitioners, often they aren't. Mm. And they will encourage 
like teachers do today and certainly school counselors. Let's talk about how you're feeling. Tell me how you're feeling. Okay, how are you feeling now? How are you feeling about this or that? It will actually encourage the conclusion that actually I don't feel very good if asked about it all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you want to be happy, we want an outward focus and we want kids to take an outward focus, focus on their soccer team, their, you know, what they're doing in soccer, what they're doing in band, what they're doing, you know, what their goals are, what their friends are up to, what, you know, anything like that, you know, an outward focus, their relationships with grandma and parents and whoever, that will make them much happier than thinking about how they're feeling. And that's just normal. Mm. Yeah. I think I remember Christopher Hitchens having some kind of nice quote about whenever he's asked if, if he's happy, whenever anyone's asked if they're happy, when they reflect on it, they're about to find out that the answer is not quite. And that that's Amazing. not, not the, uh, it's not, it's not a useful question. In other words, to ask. That's often. right. And it's not what we used to ask kids. Mm. We used to not ask them all the time. Are you enjoying your ice cream? Mm-hmm. How are you feeling about this or that? We used to say, you know, what do you think of third grade? How's third grade going? What do you tell me about your friends? Mm-hmm. Tell me about, you know, your your baseball team, how's your baseball team doing? All those are really helpful questions because they remind a child, you're part of a community, you're part of a world, don't worry, you're not alone. Mm -hmm. It's not just you, Mm -hmm. but ask a child, how are you feeling about this? How are you feeling about that? All of a sudden you're asking them to to think of themselves as totally alone. Mm -hmm. It's the opposite of what you wanna do with a kid. Mm -hmm. Um, So, let's see, actually I I just remembered your your point about social contagion, you must remember the the TikTok social contagion that that uh, TikTok Tourette's. Yes, right. This was uh, really shocking and interesting to me. The notion that you could actually convince yourself that you have Tourette's, proper Tourette's, from watching these very inter- admittedly interesting influencers on TikTok that share their Tourette's with the world, and and often their tics are are hilarious or just or, or just interesting. And, 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 and there's a spike in Tourette's that was unexplained until doctors realized that all of these new Tourette's patients all happen to follow Tourette's influencers on TikTok. Right. And to me, that's even, even somehow a more powerful and obvious proof of social contagion and its particular effect on teenage girls than, than uh, gender dysphoria, because that, that's, in that case, it's more difficult to tease out who is a real case of gender dysphoria from who is experiencing a social contagion. But here it's, 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 it's pretty cut and dry. And, and the fact that you can actually be, you can change your behavior to speak as if you have tics every five seconds. And it's, right. and, and the moment you just deflate and realize I actually don't have this, it, it can go away. That's right. I mean, I, I would just say that our minds are unbelievably fascinating and very strong. And unfortunately, they can also convince us of things that aren't true. Mm-hmm. Um, adults asking questions about your trauma can convince a child very easily that they've had one. And we we know that there's, you know, been, you know, all these recovered memories, that epidemic where kids mm-hmm. were led to believe they had been harmed in various ways that turned out not to be true. But, but even adults, we can be led to misremember things. And um, one, of the, one of the problems with all this suggestion is that, you know, and that, that unfortunately a lot of therapists are involved in, is that when you lead someone to think they might have PTSD, I mean, your story is amazing because you were an adult at the time and you're 19 years old. And you were a strong guy, obviously, by that point. And you thought about it and someone suggested, you know, your therapist suggested you had PTSD and you thought, that's not right. I don't have that. <laughs> and you moved on. Yeah. And um, that's that's why the harms aren't as serious for an adult. But a kid, forget about it. They are. They now have a diagnosis. Their t- their, their account, the next thing the therapist says to them is, don't worry, I'm going to write a note so that you can get out of timed tests. Mm-hmm. You'll never have to hand in that assignment. We now know you have PTSD and you'll be, you'll, you'll, you'll need to see me regularly. Mm-hmm. And that's just setting a kid down the really wrong path. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Is uh, a, a few kind of rapid fire questions here. Is multiple yeah. pers- per- personality disorder real? Because there, there was a sentence in your book that suggested it isn't. And I had never heard about that. 
Well, I think they now call it dissociative identity disorder. And if it exists at all, and it's a big if, if it exists at all, um, most of the people who, who believe they have it don't have it. It's a powerful social contagion and, and it's an iatrogenic therapeutic uh, social contagion that um, in a prior era, yeah, women were talked into believing they had uh, uh, these repressed memories of trauma and it was coming out as their altars. Mm. Um, so a lot of young women believe they had it. And if it exists at all, very, very few people uh, wow. have it. So seasonal affective disorder that, you know, you're, you're not quite as happy in the winter. Um, I've had several friends that, that kind of noticed that they have that. Is that uh, a, a real thing or is that contagion? Well, here's what I'll say. Why is it a disorder? We're, we call <laughs> everything a disorder today. Right. A disorder is a real serious thing, right? These are things, there are people who are in such bad shape psychologically, they can't leave their homes. Mm. They're, they're terrified to talk to another person. They can't hold down a job for these things. And we minimize it by calling nervousness anxiety disorder, by calling you know a period of sadness after the death of a loved one depression or major depressive disorder. No, that's normal response. It's healthy. And if we call everything a disorder, all of a sudden we're all pathologized and we all need med medication and therapy. And that's leading us down to the, the, the path of being permanent patients. Um, it, it's, I'm, I'm really, uh, you know, I really think this, this, this impulse, um, you know, do you know that 86% according to, I just read this in the news a couple of weeks ago, 86% of Gen Z believes it has menu anxiety, meaning fear of ordering in a restaurant. So they ask their friends to do it for them. We have talked ourselves into psychopathology and it's really not helpful mm. and it's stopping kids from growing up. Okay. So that leads me to something I, I thought of reading your book, which is, uh, exposure therapy. Exposure yeah. therapy on your account, and I think on many people's account, is very effective in dealing with specific phobias. So, I, and I can give my, I don't know that it rises to a level of a phobia when I was a kid, but I had a, a, a dog chase me and I, I had a really bad experience with a big dog when I was three. And then I was just very afraid of dogs for years. And I didn't grow up with a dog as a pet either. So just over the years, as as an American, you can't escape dogs, right? So I would just, right. over the years, it just went from bad to not quite as bad to, to now I, I have no problem being uh, in a room with a dog. And it was just a kind of exposure therapy by another name, namely being an American that goes into people's houses because there's so many dogs. Right. Isn't the lesson, or I'll phrase it this way, less leadingly, is the lesson of exposure therapy that just doing the uncomfortable thing that you dread doing until it becomes comfortable or at least bearable, is that lesson generalizable to kind of all anxiety provoking experiences, including talking on the phone, ordering, ordering uh, from a menu, going on a first date, you know, any of these things that provoke anxiety, especially in Gen Z, uh, is expo the lesson of exposure therapy sort of uh, uh, generalizable to them? I think it's generalizable to the vast majority. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying that, you know, if someone has a profound reading disability, you don't ever give them, uh, you know, extra time on the verbal section of the SAT because we have to expose them to, you know, uh, no, they have a reading disability and they may require it. But for everything short of that, you have to ask, is accommodating this going to make this anxiety worse? And most of the time, the answer is yes. You're going to end up with worse anxiety about asking a girl out or a boy out if you haven't done it. Mm -hmm. So do it. Do the thing you're afraid of. And Americans used to do this naturally. This was part, we didn't call it exposure therapy. We called it parenting. And they were, and, and, the, and the parents said to me, you, you're going to be fine. We're going to learn to swim today. And the kids, you know, no, 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 I can't, I can't, I'm going to drown. No, you're not. You're getting in the pool. And, and I'm not saying, you know, you throw a kid in and let them drown, God forbid, but I'm just saying some amount of that is going to make a kid so much stronger, right? Making them pet that dog and showing them that they can survive it mm -hmm. is a really, really powerful lesson. Yeah. Okay. So what uh i guess this will, this will be my last question what are, what are the implications for for parents um 
of of your critique of therapy like what a parent listening to this that has say 10 year old or 15 year old kids or, or or even younger kids what should be their general takeaway vis-a-vis how they parent their approach to therapy if their if their kid comes to them and says hey mom i think i want to go to therapy you know how should they think about that differently than they would before they encountered you well I, a few things so first of all um i don't think you treat get starting a kid on ther- in therapy or or psychiatric medications lightly at all you take it really seriously and if you can avoid it you do so um, that means if a kid can't be stabilized in any way but with therapy, then you need a therapist and you need to research that therapist as you would any surgeon, meaning take it really seriously. It matters. They're going to be playing with your kid's self-conception um, and self-identity. But there's something else, too. And actually, I'm curious about your childhood, um, mm-hmm. given you know how you turned out. Um, there are three things we're not giving kids today that are so important in making a kid strong. Um, we're not, we, we, we are giving them, uh, obviously I don't, I don't like therapy, but what do they actually need? They need parental authority. They need to know that the, there are rules set down by adults and that the people who love them most are the ones who are get, setting down those rules. Not someone mom hired, but mom actually knows best. Mm-hmm. They need, um, a certain amount of independence and risk taking without parental surveillance that actually has, sh- has been shown to make kids much stronger or a feeling of competence look, I can do this on my own. We're not letting kids do that because we're, we're mapping them and, and, and literally surveilling them with our phones. And that the third thing that kids really need and other cultures understand this way better than ours does, stable relationship, intimate relationships over time, cousins, siblings, people, gr- grandmothers, people who love them, not because they're paid to, not because they're paid to see them once a week, but because they actually just love them over time. Instead, in America, we change the composition of schools every year. We don't let kids, and, and mom picks their, um, p- p- picks their friends for them. Um, we need kids to have these relationships, even with the imperfect you know, grandfather who says all the wrong things. That's going to get them through a lot of hard times, feeling connected and loved by a lot of other people. And we're not giving kids that. We need to. Right. All right. So on that note, um, Abigail Schreier, this has been a great, uh, <laughs> can you tell, I guess your, your book is called bad therapy, right? Yes. Why the kids aren't growing up bad therapy. And by the time this comes out, it will be in bookstores everywhere, presumably everywhere. <laughs> and you can go and pick that up. There's a lot in there that we didn't get to here. So, uh, I encourage people to pick it up. It's, it's very important. Uh, I, I think, Thank I think it's you. a very much needed intervention and uh, uh, no one uh, no one could have done it better. So well done. Oh, thank you so much, Coleman. Really yeah. appreciate it. All right, thanks.